Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. listeners and thanks for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host Beth Matthews. Today I'm speaking with Professor Nancy Hirschman about disability. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Well, as you mentioned, I'm a professor, professor in the political science department, although I do political, political theory and political philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm also a core faculty member in the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies program at Penn. I've got my two most recent monographs were on the concept of freedom, gender class and freedom in modern political theory, and the subject of liberty towards a feminist theory of freedom. And my two most recent edited volumes are Political Theory and Disability and Civil Disabilities, Citizenship, Membership, and Belonging. So what was it that inspired you to study disability? Well, actually, what started me was the 2000 presidential election in the United States when then-candidate George Bush said that he would ban uh, embryonic stem cell research if he was elected. And... I just thought that was ridiculous, and the arguments that were being offered in, in, in favor of the ban and against embryonic stem cell research just seemed really philosophically inconsistent and politically hypocritical. So I ended up writing an article about Kant's theory of means and ends and how the arguments against embryonic stem cell research were really political arguments that were sort of underlining the pro-life position. And while I was doing that, I was also working on my my books that I just mentioned. And I started to notice what really jumped out at me, the disability imagery in these works, that the image of the lunatic or the idiot or a man fastened to his bed by sickness or the paralytic. These figures were always offered as examples of the limiting condition of freedom, that is, people to whom freedom was irrelevant, that didn't apply. And that sort of struck me, and I thought, huh, there may be a third book (laughs) in this trilogy relating to disability and the concept of freedom. So that's how I got started, and that got me involved in a variety of other journals and and edited volumes where I was asked to write uh, about articles on a variety of different topics relating to disability, and that's how I got started. 
journals and, and edited volumes where I was asked to write uh, about articles on a variety of different topics relating to disability, and that, that's how I got started. Right, that's, that is very interesting. So what is the connection between disability and freedom? Well, the most obvious is that disabled people are restricted in their liberty in a lot of ways. There's the most obvious problem of physical architectural barriers to mobility for people with mobility impairments. Uh, the world is designed not designed for people with serious vision impairments. Now you have audible crosswalks, but they're very recent. There's all sorts of ways in which the physical landscape is laid out in a way to not accommodate persons with disabilities. But it's also about attitudes, prejudicial attitudes, and ways of thinking about persons with disabilities that prevent them from doing a lot of things that they want to do. Very basically, Jacobus Tenbrook wrote an article a long time ago called The Right to Live in the World. And it was all about the idea that persons with disabilities, they just want to do what everyone else wants to do. They want to have a job. They want to be able to walk on the street without injury. They want to be able to get in an airplane or a train. They, don't, they want to be able to live their lives and be in the world. And at the time, the way tort law was structured, and that was what his article was about, it was very difficult for communities and societies and cities and municipalities to be held accountable for things like not putting barriers around uh, open manhole covers or for providing access onto common carriers for people with mobility impairments. So it was that sort of idea, I think, that really got the notion of freedom going uh, for uh, for disabled people. But I'm trying to go beyond that to understand the ways in which bodies actually uh, interact with the notion of the will and the notion of desire and the notion of subjectivity to create subjects of freedom. The the title of my my first book on freedom called The Subject of Liberty talked about the way in which gender is socially constructed to produce desires and produce choices and preferences in, in people according to gender. And I'm trying to argue that Disability has a similar phenomenon, a similar, uh, you know, some, something similar going on, particularly the ways in which not only the bodily condition itself, but the way that bodily condition is read, interpreted, and treated in society affects desires, creates subjectivity, and creates a particular relationship to the idea of freedom that is problematic and needs to be understood. This may be a a difficult question, but do you have a definition of disability? Well, that is is a very difficult question, because in my view, disability is a fairly ambiguous category because it includes a vast array of bodily differences that that change over time, and that creates, I don't know, what you might, you know, what philosophers would call phenomenological and existential challenges to uh, identity and to the categorizing of persons as disabled. So, for instance, consider a person with diabetes. You know, do they have an illness or do they have a disability? And if you consider it a disability, are they disabled all the time or just when they have really low blood sugar or just if they lose their vision or, or, or lose a leg because, because they've, the blood sugars get out of control? But in general, I, I, I think I would say that disability is a, is a bodily condition 
that diverges from majority experience in a way that puts a person to a physical slash social disadvantage. And I think that diverges somewhat from many scholars' conceptions, but it also shares a lot. So th there, are, there are basically two models uh, of dominant models in looking for uh, disability. The medical model, which entails viewing disability as an individual medical condition that needs to be cured or fixed, and the social model, which is that bodies may have impairments, but uh, those impairments are turned into disabilities by a hostile built environment, by hostile attitudes, negative social attitudes, and negative discriminatory treatment. And in the latter view, disability is completely a social construction. It is purely created for, as an obstacle for certain kinds of bodies. I want, and the medical model is generally rejected by most disability scholars. Um, the social model, however, is also coming under criticism for forgetting about bodies. And I'm trying to, I, I, I share that view. And I'm so now working to develop what I'm calling an ecological model, which recognizes that you know, bodies are material, they're real. We have a bodily experience and bodily conditions, but they exist in specific social contexts. So certain conditions may be intrinsically disabling. The philosopher Susan Wendell writes in, in The Rejected Body, her book The Rejected Body offers chronic fatigue syndrome as an example. But that doesn't mean that social contact doesn't make that worse. So for instance, she offers the example that when she wants to get a drink of water, she can walk down the hall to the water fountain, and she's not disabled from doing that. Her chronic fatigue does not extend to that point. But if she lived in a, you know, a very poor rural part of the third world where women were responsible for walking a mile or two to get water every day, her chronic fatigue would be a serious disability for her. So... There's an intrinsic dimension to that, but there's also a social dimension that can enhance and exacerbate the, the physical condition. And in other certain, certain sorts of social conditions, the intrinsic nature of the disability will become pretty minimal. So in, in high-tech uh, countries these days, for instance, uh, you know, most kids who are diagnosed with, with diabetes, they'll get these continuous glucose meters and insulin pumps that do sort of a closed-loop feedback system that feeds like what, what they call an artificial pancreas, although that, that has its own problems uh, of a name. Whereas 20 years ago, they didn't even, you know, I guess, well, when did blood glucose monitors come into existence? I think it was in the mid-'80s. Before that, checking, uh, maintaining uh, control of, of diabetes was incredibly difficult and very time-consuming and would result, almost always result, in secondary complications. Today, a lot of diabetics will not have complications because of the technology keeping up. So that changes the nature of the disability, even though there's an intrinsic dimension to that. They still have to, people still have to control their blood sugars. So that's why I want to say we need to hang on to the notion of the body and the notion of intrinsicness. Pain is one good example of the ways in which we can't just say, well, it's all socially constructed. There are physical aspects to many disability conditions. But at the same time, we also want to acknowledge ways in which social context really does contribute to the disabling of certain kinds of bodies and the enabling of other kinds of bodies. That's absolutely incredible. I've never heard or never even thought about such a thorough definition of disability. Oh, wow, that's, that's really incredible. 
What would your political analysis of disability be? Well, I think the political analysis would be, very briefly, is that disabled persons, like racial minorities and women in the United States and in many other countries around the world, are treated as inferior and they're denied basic rights of equality as a result. It's a pretty, I think, a basic political analysis of uh, discrimination and treatment as inferiors. But, of course, there's also this rich history of political struggle for recognition and for access and disability rights for disabled people that has been part of uh, 40 years or more of activism and lobbying and organization among disabled people that is really you would need to interview a historian to really get a full appreciation of, of that movement. But, but, there, but, but like all discriminated categories of people, there have been organized efforts to resist that and to claim membership in the human community. How has the American scholarship not adequately developed the concept of citizenship in reference to Americans with disabilities? Well, I think the basic problem with citizenship literature is most of them just, you know, ignore disability. Most of the work that's been done on citizenship and disability has been done by disability scholars, not by people who are experts in citizenship, in the theories of citizenship. For instance, in my volume, Political Theory and Disability, there are two people, Will Kimlicka and Roger Smith, are citizenship scholars, but most of the other people in that volume are not. And in Civil Disabilities, which was really about citizenship, you know, so many contributors to the volume, which who came from a whole wide variety of disciplines, English, history, film, sociology, anthropology, they all said, well, I don't really know anything about citizenship. But, of course, what we were trying to do in that book is get a much broader, inclusive understanding of citizenship, not just as pertaining to the, the troika of voting, military service, and jury duty, but rather to uh, relate to the whole uh, panoply of ways in which citizens uh, belong and participate in their social lives. But the citizenship scholars uh, as a whole don't really pay attention to the issue. I think Will and Rogers are are two uh, significant exceptions. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Nancy Hirschman about disability. There are some problematic ways that disability is betrayed, isn't there? Yeah, there, there are. There has been, you know, there's a history of different ways of looking at, the, uh, at, at disability, and the first is often called the medical model, right? The idea that disability is a medical condition. It pertains to a particular individual, and there's something wrong with that individual. And that individual either has to be fixed or cured in order to have a valuable life, or else needs to be analyzed or treated or cast aside in another way. So the medical model really does influence negative views of disability. But I think there's something more basic than that, which is, which is fear. 
you think of the long history of, a very nasty history, of mockery of persons with disabilities. And of course, unfortunately, the American president during the last presidential campaign had a very uh, infamous example of mocking a disabled reporter. And that is actually quite a not uncommon uh, occurrence throughout the world, although I think you're finding it happening less and less. But it does sort of into this sort of negative image that disabled people are somehow less than human. They are lesser humans. But of course, the the alternative of of mockery is pity, right? The notion that the poor dears, they can't really take care of themselves, they're incapable, the physical and intellectual disabilities are merged together, resulting in a long history of institutionalization. There's, uh, among people with intellectual disabilities, there's often the assumption that there's a lower capacity than is often the case. And so there, the negative images of persons with disability really runs the gamut from the mean and nasty to the apparently charitable but no less problematic views of persons with disability. Yes, I find that people think that dyslexia is a very humorous disability and they think mm-hmm. that they have the right to sort of make fun of anybody who's dyslexic. I don't know how many times I've heard the the joke, oh, dyslexic people believe in dog, not God. That There's this myth that everybody who's dyslexic reads backwards. And it seems quite, you know, I mean, as you said, we have come a long way, but it does seem to be one disability that people think they have the right to make fun of or yeah. if they imp- yeah. mispronounce something. that Oh, I'm having a dyslexic moment. Ha, yeah. ha, ha. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we still do have a long way to go, really, right. don't we? Yes, yes. I mean, there is, there's, a, there's a reductiveness based on ignorance, and there's this oversimplification of what a disability condition involves. And as I said, I think a lot of this is based in fear, because a lot of disabilities, you could wake up tomorrow with an autoimmune disorder. You could get in a car accident on your way home. People can become disabled at any minute. I mean, there are other, some dis- disabilities that are based in disease. There are some that are based on accidents. And there are some that, you know, people are born with, some that are genetic, uh, come from genetic conditions. I don't want to deny that. But it is true that a lot of people, I think, are afraid of disabled persons because they're somehow deeply afraid that they will somehow become disabled and they don't want that to happen to them. And I think that fear really motivates a lot of animosity and a lot of hostility and a lot of anger, what results in these, these negative, these attempts to reduce and simplify and, and dismiss the, the complexity of disabilities. Yes, we had a case here in Melbourne when the, the head of the transport department and his secretary were both offered a challenge. And the challenge was they had to get into wheelchairs and access public transport because he, he said that the situation was fine for people with disabilities. So somebody sort of said, all right, well, here's the wheelchair, off you go. And it was peak hour and they both got on the one carriage. And one woman looked at them and said, how selfish of you travelling together Now, people can't sit down because you're taking up so much room and they just got so many negative comments that it totally changed their whole perspective of it. And I think that if people had to walk a mile in in other people's shoes, it may well change their perspectives. 
Yes, I, I, th- I think I think that's that's true. There's also, though, a, a much simpler uh, approach, which is that you could simply listen and really listen to someone with uh, disabilities. I've recently been working on an article, on an essay. There's an essay by a French, 18th century French philosopher, uh, Denis Diderot, who is most famous for the, the big multi-volume encyclopedia, French uh, Enlightenment encyclopedia. And he wrote this essay called A Letter on the Blind for the Benefit of Those Who Can See. And in this letter, he takes up a philosophical problem that was posed in the 17th century and became somehow some sort of an obsession with a lot of uh, uh, Enlightenment philosophers, which is that you imagine uh, a man who is blind from birth who learns to tell the difference between a, a cube and a sphere by touch. Then suddenly his eyesight is cured or restored, which both of which are very problematic terms. Uh, and the question is, would he be able to tell the difference between the cube and the sphere by sight alone? And Molyneux says, I think he would not, and that's you know the subject of the debate that ensues. Would, would he be able to tell? And the, the argument is based on the notion that how we know what we know has got to be based on experience. And you can't just, if you restore someone's sight, you, you can't just expect them to, to be able to see. And so when cataract surgery started becoming a little bit more common or a little bit more common in the 18th century, people were starting to use these surgeries on people who had been blind almost since birth to try out this experiment uh, to see whether they could tell the cube from the sphere uh, at once. And they almost all failed because a lot of them were formed by a Russian oculist who, who would remove the cataracts and people would be able to see immediately but then would become permanently blind uh, shortly thereafter. And so the, the Diderot has this, this line. He says, you know, this is so ridiculous. People, these philosophers are going around imagining what it would be like and they're trying to give vision to blind people and it's, they're, they're, they're making them miserable. Instead, why don't we just sit down and talk to a blind man of good sense and ask him how he perceives the world, ask him what it's like to be blind. And the whole letter then goes on to talk about some famous blind people like Nicholas Saunderson, a mathematics professor at Oxford, and the, the so-called the unnamed uh, blind man for Pousseau and Mademoiselle Melanie de Salignac, who was also a mathematician. And his argument is basically, you know, philosophers have to stop thinking in hypothetical abstractions and imagining what it is like to have these experiences. We could just talk to people and ask them what it's like and listen to them and believe them. And the believability, I think, is the, the stumbling block to a lot of people's perception of, law, of, of disabled experience. Studies show, one, studies show that disabled people have the same levels of happiness as non-disabled people. But a lot of non-disabled people don't believe that statistic. In fact, my favorite study is that persons who are severely disabled in like a, a traumatic accident and people who win lots of money in the lottery, after about six months to a year after the shock, whether the shock or the, the, uh, the change wears off, those people return to the same levels of happiness that they had before the relevant event. 
So you think, you know, you win the lot, millions of, of dollars or mil, you know, millions of euros or millions of pounds in the lottery, and everything's fine, everything's great. Not really. People who were unhappy before they won the money will become unhappy within a, again without without six months to a year. Persons who become who lose the use of their legs or become blind uh, through accident, who were happy ahead of time, they will become happy again within six months to a year. They won't they won't radically uh, change their lives. And people who don't have disabilities tend to disbelieve these sorts of studies. And I think again that has to do with fear but it also has to do with this foundation of, of trying to misperceive what disability is like, of being based in ignorance and not really wanting to know what disability is like. How is the idea of disability being used to achieve different political goals? Well, a lot of them are very specific things. So ranging from getting a ramp to a very particular building to braille signage or audible crosswalks. And I think that the uh, attempt to achieve these very specific goals are, are very important are very important politically. But of course, going back to Tenbrook's notion of the right to live in the world, to hold a job, to walk the streets without injury, that does tie into much larger uh, political goals of, of legislative change, such as we saw with the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Americans with Disabilities Amendment Act. And the goal in a lot of this legislation is, on one hand, it's, it's a sort of integration and normalization. Right? The idea that, look, just because you use a wheelchair doesn't mean that you're not qualified to be a lawyer or be a doctor or to do any wide variety of jobs. Just because you have cerebral palsy doesn't mean that you can't be a journalist. Just because you're blind doesn't mean that you can't do, you can't be a prof- college professor. So the notion that the ADA and the ADAAA tried to put forth was, the, what was that disabled people want to hold jobs and they shouldn't be discriminated against. Now, there's always a downside to this sort of stuff because, of course, the ADA and the Amendment Act were both passed by conservative uh, Republican administrations and Congresses, and there's a welfare reform side to that, right? The, the goal is to reduce the welfare rolls, to reduce payments, uh, subsistence payments, subsistence income payments to persons with disabilities, and to get people to engage in tax-generating and income-generating behavior. And the problem with that, of course, now is that people who really are not able to work, that are too disabled to be able to hold a job, are now being pushed off of welfare roles. So every time there's a political advantage, advance, there seems to be, you know, there's always a danger, there's always a threat of a political retreat as well. Um, but, but I think that the, the forward motion of the political movement uh, in disability activism has been pretty positive, and there have been really good benefits and pro- uh, progression despite these setbacks. What are the positives of having a disability? Well, on the one hand, you know, the, the, the lottery example I, I just mentioned suggests that it's really neither positive or negative. It's just a different way of being, and a lot of people believe that, that it's not either. 
But other people believe that it is a very positive experience. You build communities, you have connections with others, just like any other uh, oppressed identity category, that it offers you a very different critical perspective that you otherwise uh, would not have, that one of the things about disability scholarship is that it enables you to see things that you might not have seen uh, if you were not disabled. And it also develops a notion of, you know, being able to, you know, pay attention to your body, to listen to your body, being in tune with bodily needs. And that may or may not be a positive thing because, of course, it's very hard. And if you read first-person narratives of disability experience, you can see the ways in which being having having to pay attention to your body, which a lot of non-disabled people just, you know, sort of dismiss and take for granted, and a lot of people abuse their bodies, that caring for your body and attending to it can be very time-consuming and exhausting and very difficult, but it also can be very, very rewarding. So there's a whole panoply of reactions to, to having a disability. A lot of people just don't want it, and they would love it to go away, and a lot of people think that they are the person that they are because of their disability, and they are grateful for who they are, they're happy with who they are, and they don't particularly want to become non-disabled. So there's a whole variety, and I think that the positives, the people who view disability as a positive, uh, will emphasize the critical, their, their different perspectives, their different relationship to their body, as well as the communities uh, and connections with others. And thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Well, you're welcome, and thank you so much for inviting me. It was great to talk to you. And I've been speaking to Professor Nancy Hirschman about disability. Well, that's all we have time for today. Hope you've enjoyed the program, and do stay tuned for Are You Looking At Me? 